Hello, and welcome to the Third Age Design Podcast, sharing essential information on senior environments. I'm Laurie Pinkerton Rowley. If you recall, and actually even if you don't, our guest last month was Dr. David Sheard talking about emotional intelligence. Much of what we talked about related to what makes a place a home, particularly if it's a shared space. Well, this month, we're taking this concept and looking into the research which has been done in this area by Dr. Anne Fleming of Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen, Scotland. In fact, her doctoral thesis there was on this exact topic, so we're going straight to the expert. Her research reviewed information from the United States, Ethiopia, Ireland, Australia, and many other parts of the world. In other words, exactly the type of international information we research and share here at Third Age Design, which you will not find anywhere else. And speaking of Australia, the land down under goes under the microscope in this episode as both of our Hats Off tributes and Innovation Spotlight look at what's happening there right now. As a designer... My favorite quote from Oscar Wilde were his reported last words, which were, apparently, this wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death, either it goes or I do. Another goodie is this one. Experience is the hardest kind of teacher. It gives you the test first and the lesson afterward. And that, dear listeners, is the purpose of Third Age Design, to share information and learn from the experience of other people, important research. In addition to our podcast, we have a website full of useful information, and if you go to thirdage.design and hit join, you'll automatically receive our at-home safety checklist for older people, as well as receiving what we call a tad extra each quarter, exclusive information for our members. Best of all, it's entirely free. So what are you waiting for? Okay, let's get started. Our guest today was literally tracked down from her successful doctoral thesis entitled Care Homes, the Developing Ideology of a Homelike Place to Live, which she completed under the supervision of Dr. Angela Kidd of Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen, Scotland. Our guest is Dr. Anne Fleming, who retired this past October, but qualified as an occupational therapist in 1983 from Queen Margaret College, Edinburgh. Her clinical practice focused on people with learning disability, with managerial responsibility for older people's services, mental health, and pediatrics. And while working in the NHS, she completed her master's degree in inclusive environments at the University of Reading. As I've already mentioned, her doctoral dissertation explored stakeholder perceptions of homeliness in care homes, and this work has been presented at international conferences. And I should just mention here that homeliness means something quite different in the United States. So for that country, please think of that word as being hominess. And welcome to Third Age Design. No, I think it's very important uh, information that you've researched. And I note that you qualified as an occupational therapist, and then you did your master's in inclusive environments. Yeah. Where do you think your interest in sort of senior environments specifically originated? I think during pre-registration placements, particularly my placement with the social work department, where a lot of work was focusing on AIDS and adaptations that really highlighted how the environment could support people or not. Um, 
I also had Wounded People Services placements. Um, and in my first job, I had what was then called two geriatric assessment wards, two long day wards, and a lot of the acute medical patients were elderly people. So you were going out doing home visits and again looking at how the environment could support their performance or not, as the case may be. So I think from very early stages in my career, um, we became aware that older people quite often had different needs. And then when I was in the Royal Scottish National Hospital, as it was at the time, I got very involved in the reprovisioning, which was the closing down of these big institutions and rehousing people in a different variety of accommodation. Some was purpose-built to their specific needs. Some was purpose-built towards a group need. Uh, I then got involved in the design of the community hospitals. And for that reason, I thought that the Masters in Inclusive Environments would be very beneficial for me. And did you decide just that inclusive environments was really the way to go as opposed to uh, interventions that made more medical-looking in, in design? Well, I thought the inclusive environments was more likely to suit the needs of everybody. And we're looking at a very mixed population with very diverse needs. So while we looked at individual needs, but also adopted a lot of the principles of the inclusive environment. That makes a lot of sense. And, and then when you decided to do your doctoral dissertation, why did you decide that this concept of a home was a particularly important area of research? Well, that, that took me about three months to settle on. The studentship that was offered was the impact of the national care standards and care homes. So after searching the literature and really studying the national care standards, the word homely or homelike, or I know that homely is different meaning in different countries. I came across that in various conferences. <laughs> um, you know, the, the word making it homely or homely, I just thought, can you do that when you've maybe got three different generations of people living in it who maybe have got nothing in common with each other, who probably have totally different ideas of what is homelike, and it seemed to me strange to use that when it was something that was really difficult to measure. Well, that is, I mean, that is what I got out of reading your paper, is I, I understand you started with about 280 papers being resourced. Then one, 151 of them were excluded when you initially, and then another 53 after they were read in full. Why do you think this is so difficult to pin down and analyze? Is it because of what you just said, that there's so many different people with a different approach to what home means to them? I think that's a big part of it, because they all have very individual ideas. Defining what makes a place a home is very, very complex. And at one point I was thinking, you know, you've got all these different things that contribute, but it's a bit like a kaleidoscope. Every time you look at it, people put the pieces in different places. So you're getting different patterns, but maybe containing the same elements, but organized differently. So it's very complex. But also I think 
the concept of home is quite dynamic. It changes over time. So if you look at the work by, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Witold Rubinsky, who's looking over five centuries of the development of home from a communal living area for everybody plus animals to what we consider home now. But home was not, home was once the sort of female domain while the men went out to work. Now we have people working at home. So the structure, the organisation of the home has to become different to facilitate that. So the idea of what a home is changes over time and will be different to different generations. And I think that makes it very difficult then to say what makes a place home-like. That make that makes a lot a lot of sense, and also people's homes evolve. So, what is in the interior environment in my home now isn't what was even here five years ago. Yeah, but, I mean, I, I can remember my grandparents still having an outside lavatory, right? Uh, whereas now people would anticipate having an ensuite. Yes, uh, and that's a relatively short space of time. But there were some common themes that I, I I could see in your work. One was that a, a default position seemed to be that a place was considered home-like or homely if it was not institutional mm-hmm. and if it was small in scale. Yeah. And then it goes on, the paper goes on into kind of eight main themes, but it talks about some things that seem to contradict one another in the findings. So first of all, just going back to that first point, your analysis and conclusion of the work, do you agree that that really is the default position that if you were to generalize homey, home-like, homeliness is something that is not institutional and small in scale? Would you agree with that statement? I probably would have done before carrying out my interviews with stakeholders. But I think, you know, it is possible for somewhere large in scale to provide a place where people feel they belong, which I think is probably a better way of describing homeliness. I think the institutional bit is more to do with, like, the power relationship, that people don't feel that the staff have all the power, that they feel able to complain that their needs and their wishes are respected, which you would hope would be the case. Um, So I I don't feel the size is necessarily an issue. The other thing that I think changed my mind was the way people viewed the care home. If they viewed their room as their care home, then they were less likely to feel at home that they belonged there but if they viewed the whole facility as their home, then they were much more likely to feel I'm in the right place at the right time for me. So that, that was quite mm-hmm. a strong message that the participants gave me. And some of that then, if I'm understanding you correctly, relates to how engaged they are with what's happening. Yeah, and that might not be terribly active participation. Um, there was one care home where the staff said there were three seats in the sort of foyer near the office, near the front door. And they said it is like a race in the morning for people to get those seats because they can see who's coming in and going out 
and you know the, these are the prime seating positions rather than a, a day room or a living room or a dining room. It's not necessarily interacting with who's coming and going, but being aware of what's going on. And there was another place where the balcony in the first story was a favourite spot because they could see the local neighbourhood children going, coming from school, out in their new bikes on Christmas Day, and that feeling of being connected to the wider community from there. Again, maybe not a lot of active participation, but feeling connected. So if you were to advise a group of operators and people commissioning new buildings and designers and architects, which is basically who we're speaking to right now, if you were to say changes that you might make to the structure of a building or the layout of a building based on that sort of research, what advice, if any, would you give? I would suggest they got to know as much about the people that would be living and working there as possible, certainly try and have them engaged in the design. I think looking at post-occupancy evaluations, if they can find any um, from other builds, I certainly find they were quite difficult to get hold of. Think about the functionality of the space. You know, what, what is that space there to do? I mean, some, some spaces it's quite obvious. It's a dining room, it's a kitchen, it's a bathroom, it's bedroom. But is a living room a public space? Could it be a more semi-public space? Do we want ones of different sizes for different functions? Does it have to be very clinical? Could you have a bar, for example? I know some care homes that do, uh, particularly popular with the male residents. Um, <laughs> what, what about the outside spaces? What, what does that mean for the people that are going to be living there? Can they participate in the garden? Is there a shed where the men can potter about? Um, and particularly the men, I think, like to have a shed. Um, well, I, I think it's about looking very closely at the functionality of the different spaces and what people might be doing with them. And then I think if you can possibly involve the people who will be living there, that really helps to inform that functionality. Yes, I did have that opportunity once where we were building a, a new home for a group of people and they would be moving from the old one to the new one and we were able to participate in that way. But very often you don't get that get that yeah. option, unfortunately. But I think you've raised this point about people seeing what's going on in the building. And yes, if everybody's off in a side lounge then you're disconnected from that sort of central hub of activity. So it yeah. seems to kind of respond back to this idea, perhaps a little bit of a of a hub, just taking what you're saying, you know, further of a hub, but with these other opportunities such as sheds. I quite like a shed too, but um, <laughs> yeah. uh, such as sheds or, or whatever these other pers more personalized opportunities are, but maybe off of this central key space rather than here's your lounge off to the side, you will go there. Mm -hmm. Does that does that respond to what you're saying? Yes, very much so. 
we always, as designers and architect, we always fall on the side of safety over something being homelike for reasons which should be obvious. Yeah. But in your work, you mentioned that carpets are often recorded as a source of falls, mm-hmm. but that they also contribute to a homelike quality in a space. Yeah. When you were doing your previous research into inclusive design, did this lead you to just a personal preference of either vinyl or carpet? Because I have to tell you, we have this conversation on every job, and I, I just had it yesterday. Yeah. Um, where did you end up on this option yourself? I think there is a place for both, and possibly even a wider range of flooring materials. Um, you know, what's, what's wrong with a wooden floor or um, engineered board or tiles? Does it have to be vinyl or carpet? You know, let's maybe look at what else is available. And carpet, I think, can be really good. It does reduce noise, for example, where you've got trolleys and wheelchairs and stuff rattling up and down. But then a carpet is more difficult to clean than vinyl, so maybe again think about what is the space being used for. I think the, the colour and the pattern of the carpet needs to be very carefully considered. Um, most of the falls I've found with carpets have been because the carpet has not been well maintained. So maybe it's come up from the gripper or it's frayed or there's a hole in it and it's that kind of thing that tended to cause falls. But you also need to think about people's conditions. The carpet has much less reflectivity than the likes of vinyl. So you're not going to get like pools of light, pools of glare that might make it look wet and slippy. So that could make you feel more secure when you're mobilizing. But also think about the pattern. If you've got great big round dots, for example, on the carpet, and somebody has a visual impairment, that might look like a hole. Or if you've got broad stripes, that might look like stairs. And that will become confusing. Um, Again, people on the autistic spectrum, if it's a very busy pattern, they're going to be so busy looking at that detail they're not going to be looking at where they're going. I think you have to think again about what is going to suit most people rather than individual preference is lovely and, you know, that could be applied to own rooms. But for general areas, I think, again, the sort of inclusive environment principles really need to be considered. Um, And I think the use of colour as well Hilary Dalkey's work, I don't know if you know her. I know her very well, actually. I've right, heard, yes. well, I think her work in colour is very useful. If you've got foyers, porches, where folk are coming in wet, muddy, maybe that's a better place for vinyl or tiles, you know, that are easy cleaned. But I think that the softening effect of carpet in a lot of other areas can make it feel warmer, cosier and more like what you would have at home. Yes. Uh, See, I don't think we need to limit it to either carpet or vinyl. I I see what you're saying. And um, I will just say to the listeners, um, I will add on to the references for this podcast links to some of uh, Hilary Dalk's work as well, because it is a very important bit of research. One thing that particularly interested me in your study was several of the authors that you were researching said 
uh, home is associated with tradition, family values, comfort, and that how objects on display provided familiarity for a person's identity and for their sense of control over their environment. So I, I'm just going to throw this out there. Are we as designers, are we making a mistake by curating the front of house objects? So if there's shelving, we'll put a lovely vase or we'll put, you know, uh, purchase things or find things in order to decorate the front of house. And we will always, because there are so many different people and so many different ideas of home, we will always pick things which are not offensive to anyone, but that also means that they might not be meaningful to anybody. (laughs) So do you you think in, in terms of forming this sense of home that designers should continue to dress those areas and let residents just do their own space? Or do you think we might need to step back a little bit and only do some areas or let residents do all of it? I think possibly stepping back, and also it's going to depend on what objects you choose. I've seen places where they've used the sort of local history to design objects to go. So one near Glasgow Airport, you know, there was models of a plane and globe and things that, sort of had a relevance to the local area, mm-hmm. maybe rather than a nice space. Right. Something with a per- a bit of a purpose. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, folk like to talk about where they went in the local community if they've chosen a care home local to where they lived, because that seems to help maintain that connection. And some people elect to go and live in a care home maybe 120 miles away to be closer to family. But that can also lead to a disconnection because they don't know anybody in that area and are then very dependent on family coming to visit them. But if they stay in their own area, then that sense of connection can be easier, I think, to maintain. So if the objects are representing that community, then that's going to help with a sense of connection. Right. And this the word connection you've used several times yeah. in, our, in, our, in our discussion. And I'd like to kind of end on that point as well. Um, you raised it earlier that it's about people feeling connected, feeling, you know, seeing who's coming in and out, having engagement with the wider community, or you used the example of, you know, the children outside. Mm-hmm. And there was a bit of information um, in your paper that there was an Irish study which compared a quote-unquote traditional nursing unit with a more home model um, where people were very interactively occupied. And I found it absolutely startling that when they compared the nutritional intake between people in a more traditional nursing unit and more of a home-like unit, there was more intake, people were eating better in a more homely environment. It actually, there was a physical manifestation of that environment. And your conclusion, um, which you related to a piece of research by Hathcott, was this idea of dwelling is both a place and a process. Could you just speak to that just a little bit more to end on? Because I think this is really 
sort of a, a broad overriding principle of, of your work, as I saw it. I was kind of surprised that you were startled about the higher nutritional intake. Um, what they had done in the more home-like unit was develop the role of a homemaker who was there to support people in food preparation, be it baking scones or making a meal. Now, people, again, can choose what level of participation they had. But if you're involved in that food preparation, think of all the sensory stimulation that is going to be promoting appetite. So you've got the visual stimulation, you've got the olfactory stimulation. You know, you cut an onion, you smell it. Um, You've got tactile stimulation if they're helping with the preparation. You've got both oral as in hearing, because you can hear bacon sizzle or whatever. Um, And then you've got oral as in taste, if you're tasting a bit of the cheese as you go along. And all of that, plus the reminiscing that goes on and, oh, I like this and you like that, that's going to stimulate your appetite much more than just sitting at a table and having a meal put in front of you. And you have responsibility because when when you're at home, in your own home, there are things you need to do. There are things you need to take responsibility for. Yeah. And some of the care homes, certainly that I've been to, everything is done for you. You don't even have a you don't have a purpose except to get through the day and you might attend an activity, but you're not engaged. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people living on their own, um, you know, cooking for yourself, it's tedious. And you think, oh, cook that, I mean, I'll be eating it for three days. Uh, it's kind of demotivating. But if you're doing it, eating is very much a social activity. That is why we all like to go out for a nice meal. Plus the fact I'm great for nice meal, we don't have to cook it or wash up. <laughs> but, it, but it's a very yeah. social thing to do. Oh, how's your meal? Do you want to try this? So I, I think if we can maintain that socialisation in the process, that again is going to stimulate reminiscence, participation, appetite. It's going to improve self-esteem if you've contributed. I was in one care home where the Chef was helping some ladies make marmalade with Seville oranges, which was wonderful. And they were so proud we'll be having that marmalade that we made right. tomorrow. Increasing that confidence, if you like, um, that can be lost if you don't have the responsibility to do things anymore. And where would you stand then on uh, laundries? for certain types of items that, that people can can do themselves rather than it going through the laundry service? Is that another opportunity? Oh, absolutely. I think particularly for personal items, you know, maybe not great big heavy loads of sheets and towels and such like, but certainly for personal items, lots of places do have that option. Yes, and I, I've always thought that was it was nice again to have that option and and a kind of um, use it or lose it mentality that yeah you know it's it you, you take responsibility for yourself 
by doing things. And also you meet others around the dryer and have a chat, you know, yeah. it becomes a social stimulation as well. I cannot thank you enough. And I, I have uh, a link to your work. People will need to download and get in, engaged with uh, an academic portal, but we're giving uh, the links for people to look into this in greater detail. It's a, a really important background information with some wonderful conclusions that you've drawn and um, appreciate the work and appreciate your time with us today. Well, thank you. We're focusing on the land of Oz this month. It's blessed with months of great weather. It does have the occasional deadly poisonous critter, but other than that, Australia seems like the perfect place to retire. So this month, we're looking at their initiatives towards retirement living. And unsurprisingly, it's been rather easy for one to come to our attention as this month's Hats Off feature. The publication, Best Practice Principles for Senior Community Design, has been issued online in conjunction with the Property Council of Australia and the well-known Australian Pan-Asian architectural practice, Thomson Adset. This is an exemplary document highlighting the central need for community and diversity in the culture of senior communities. This goes back to exactly our interview earlier today. It states that the main driver of social connectedness and linkages is inclusion without barriers that isolate residents from their village, neighborhood, or the broader community, exactly what Anne Fleming was talking about. I can't recommend this report highly enough, and you'll find the full report via the resources link to this podcast at www.thirdage.design. And today our Innovation Spotlight shines on the University of Queensland and DMA engineers. Together, they put on an award-winning charrette entitled Reimagining Aged Care in a Post-Pandemic Era. How timely. This annual charrette pulls together designers, innovators, and planners to discuss how to create change. The University of Queensland Director of the Healthy Aging Initiative, Professor Laurie Byes, says the biggest challenge for care is how we think about the design. There are many fundamental structures that need to be changed, and really, what's holding us back is our imagination and our willingness to change the assumption and to create a different future. You'll find more about this creative initiative at the resources link on this podcast at www.thirdage.design. And remember, if you hit join while you're there, you'll automatically receive our exclusive home safety checklist for the third age. Just a quick look then at our TAD International Events calendar. Some events are in person, some are also available online, so please check the website to see what's been added recently and what your options are. But I'd like to highlight the Retirement Industry Conference taking place at the Boston Park Plaza Hotel in Boston, Massachusetts in the United States from the 11th to the 13th of May. June 15th to the 17th, we'll find the second European Conference on Aging and Gerontology, or EGEN20, which is a lot easier to say, taking place at the Institute of Education, University College, London, UK, where the built environment is featured among those topics. 
and the fifth annual Future of Age Care Summit 2022 will be held at the Sofitel, Sydney, Australia from the 15th to the 17th of June. You'll find more about international shows and conferences on the events page at thirdage.design and drop us a line via the contact page if you have an event you'd like to see listed there. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Ann Fleming, to our amazing producer, Mike Scales, for putting up with me, to Valerie Adler of The Right Website, to Peter Thorne, who composed our theme music and is playing the piano with Mary Blanchard on flute, and finally, to you. Thank you for being part of a community who believes we can improve senior environments together by sharing information. I'm Laurie Pinkerton Rowley, and I hope you'll join me for the next one. Thank you.